Well, please prepare your hearts as I prepare my text. you join, uh, join with me in prayer again? Father, what a joy it has been to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. And Lord, we wish to continue to exalt you. Lord God, let the preacher fade into the background and let Christ be exalted. Let your glory shine forth this morning as this message from your word is preached. Lord God, I pray that you would stir every heart to see and to understand more deeply who you are, Jesus Christ. Who you are. The series title, Knowing Christ. Lord, we long to know you. And I pray this morning as we study your word you would reveal a deeper sense of who you are to our weary souls and that that knowledge of who you are would spur us on to love, to good works, to confidence in our saving faith. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title of this message is Lord of the Sabbath. I'm going to be preaching from Mark chapter 2 verses 23 through Mark chapter 3 verse 6. But I've got to do a little bit of a filler because we have a little gap in the text. Uh, Ron preached last week through verse 17. I'm going to cover verses 18 through 22 and then jump into my actual sermon. So if you'll bear with me. Uh, Please turn in the text to Mark chapter 2, verse 18. It is written, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the groom is with them, the attendants of the groom cannot fast, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the groom is taken away from them, and then they will fast on that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch will pull away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. The Pharisees fasted. John the Baptist's disciples fasted. But what was the point of this fasting? The Pharisees, under tra traditional rabbinic Judaism, were fasting because they believed that the way to prepare for the coming of the Messiah was to have a humble heart, a heart of contrition, a heart of humility. Any action contrary to this might jeopardize uh, the Messiah coming. It would delay his coming. And so the Pharisees were obviously offended that the disciples were not fasting. 
They were eating. They were enjoying themselves. They were celebrating with Jesus. What we're going to learn here is two lessons from this passage. First of all, Messiah's kingdom brought in, is brought in by joy and feasting, not mourning and fasting. And uh, this is something that uh, Pastor Ron did a, an outstanding job last week teaching us, that it is a time of feasting and a time of joy and a time of fellowship, and Jesus brings us around the table. And his kingdom came in that capacity. But the more important lesson to be learned in this passage is that Christ's kingdom was, in fact, coming. And it was approaching an unworthy, sinful people. And if it was coming in that condition, then that meant it was coming based upon grace and not works. And that is something that we know very well, that we are saved by grace, through faith, not works. And so the celebration was a celebration of what Christ was doing. It was not a meritorious thing of fasting and humiliating ourselves so that we could somehow bring it in. And the calling of Matthew in the previous section before that demonstrated that very well, didn't it? Jesus didn't call the righteous. He didn't call the penitent. He called tax collectors. He called sinners. And then he went on and partied with tax collectors and sinners to communicate that his message was a, was a message of grace. In verse 20, it says, the day will come when the groom will be taken away. And we understand that to mean the crucifixion. There would come a day when Christ would be crucified and then his disciples would fast and mourn. But that was not a fasting and mourning because the Messiah had not come. But it was a mourning and it was a, it was a fasting that was both internal and external based upon the hardships that the early Christians would face. Jesus uses two illustrations in this text. One is a new patch that goes on, um, well, a new patch that is placed on an old cloth. And the second one is new wine that's placed in old wineskins. Now, we don't use wineskins anymore to put our wine in. Um, we use bottles or flasks or whatnot. But in those days, wineskins were used. And what would happen in both of these situations is the patch, the new patch, would tear the cloth and, and destroy it, or the new wine would burst the wineskin. So the point Jesus was making here was the old covenant and the new covenant are not compatible. The kingdom of heaven that Jesus is ushering in when he comes is new. It is alive. The old is dying and will soon be gone. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 13, is, this is reiterated where it says the old covenant is obsolete, it is aging, and will soon disappear. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 6, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And the New Living Translation renders this very well when it says the old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. These two covenants are not compatible. Jesus did not come to refresh the old covenant. He came to fulfill it and do away with it. And that brings us up to our text today. But before I begin want to talk to you about what is going on in this entire context. Between Mark chapter 2 verse 1 and Mark chapter 3 verse 6, we encounter five conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees. Each of these conflicts results in some very amazing things, and Mark wants us to understand these things. First of all, Jesus is presented through these conflicts as victorious. He's presented as authorized to forgive sins, He's presented as 
welcoming of great sinners into his friendship and his ministry. We see that with Matthew. And we see Jesus disregarding certain religious ceremonies. Now, rather than reading the entire text up front to you, as we have a custom of doing, I'm going to let it unfold as I preach. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing, looking at it verse by verse. I'll just tell you where we're going. We're going to look at this text verse by verse. That's called exegesis. (laughs) And after that, we are going to go back and we're going to look at the identity of Christ in a more in-depth way. I also want to add one comment here, and that is I am going to be interjecting just a little bit of Matthew's parallel account into the Markan account. And the reason so is because it reveals more about who Jesus is and his identity, and it's very applicable applicable to what we're talking about this morning. So, here we go. Verse 23. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look! Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? First thing to notice here is is that the Pharisees just happened to be there. The verse says it happened that he was passing through the grain fields. Just to let you know, nothing that Jesus did just happened. Everything he did was sovereignly and providentially arranged for a purpose. And the Pharisees were not there by accident either. Now, this idea of picking grain, some of you might find that a little interesting. I I, uh, uh, often take walks in the morning and I see trees with fruit hanging over the sidewalk and I've often been tempted to pick those. I don't know if that's legal or not. I, I haven't looked into that, taking a piece of fruit that's hanging over a public sidewalk. But in ancient Israel, it was a, it was a, legal to do that. You were authorized to do that. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verse 25 allowed the hand picking of grain so long as you didn't use a tool to pick it. And that's what the disciples were doing. They were strolling through a grain field and you can imagine this picking little heads of grain rubbing the chaff off and having a nice snack. I've heard it's very tasty (laughs) and this was completely okay to do. But what was not okay to do at least according to the tradition was that it was done on the Sabbath day. Now, was this the law or was this tradition? There was a great history of tradition that had developed in the intertestamental time. Uh, The Pharisees had developed ridiculous, rigid, and even oppressive rules to guard the Sabbath. And so they set up a hedge around the Sabbath to protect it from being violated. And in order to protect that hedge, they set up another hedge and another hedge and another hedge. So by the time of Jesus, you have traditions that were, well, as I said before, ridiculous. Let me, let me give you an example of a few of these. Traveling, uh, by the way, I am getting this from John MacArthur's commentary, and he's quoting a historian by the name of Alfred Edershine. I want to give proper attribution before I say all this. Uh, Traveling more than 3,000 feet was a violation of the Sabbath. However, if you thought ahead and put some food at 3,001 feet the day before the Sabbath, you can consider that home and go another 3,000 feet. An object tossed into the air could be caught by the same hand on the Sabbath, but if you caught it in the other hand, you were in violation of the Sabbath. Cold water 
could be poured into warm water, but not vice versa. Bathing was forbidden, but here's why. It's not what you think. If the water spilled on the floor, you would be guilty of washing the floor, and that is work. Moving a chair on the Sabbath. Now, you have to remember the floor is dirt or sand, so moving a chair on the Sabbath is a violation of the Sabbath. Why? Well, the chair might move the dirt, and you would be guilty of plowing. Here's my favorite one. A woman was not allowed to look in the mirror on the Sabbath. She might be tempted to pull out a gray hair. So, as you can tell, as you can see, lots of ridiculous, um, rigorous, and we laugh at these things now, but these were oppressive rules. These were hard burdens that the Pharisees were placing upon the people. Why? So that they could have power. Now, there were sincere motives. Originally, there were sincere motives. The Pharisees were traditionalists, and they wanted to return Israel to its glory that it had before. There's a pattern of Israel moving away from God's plan and God's purpose by intermingling with foreign nations and engaging in their practices. And the Pharisees were guarding against that. But over time, this had become oppressive. uh, By the time that Jesus uh, was doing his ministry, the Pharisees were guilty of hypocrisy and of laying harsh burdens upon the people. So what exactly was the Sabbath? Well, in order to understand the Sabbath, we have to go back to the beginning. And that's Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2 and 3 says, By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because on it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. So in this passage, we see two truths. First of all, the Sabbath was ordained by God. That means that God is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is sovereign over it. He defines it. He gets to tell us what it means and what it doesn't mean. Second, the Sabbath is a gift from God to man. So point one, he is sovereign and Lord over the Sabbath. We're going to come back to that later. Number two, it is a gift. It is a gift to man. The word Sabbath actually means rest. It means ceasing from labor. Uh, uh, Commentator Richard Lenski writes, The principle behind the Sabbath was that it might be a blessing for man. This day afforded man physical rest and time to attend to his spiritual needs. But the scribes and Pharisees had inverted this. They treated man as if he had been created for the purpose of keeping the Sabbath laws, whereas God intended that man should benefit from and be blessed by the Sabbath. Verse 25, And Jesus said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? By the way, I want you to get into this moment. Remember the Pharisees had studied the law from early childhood. Their first words were Torah, Torah, maybe not Torah, 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 Um, not that Torah. But their, their their first books, the books that they studied, they had the Torah memorized. They read it every day, every night, multiple times. They knew it inside and out. And for Jesus to say, have you never read? Was offensive. 
it was, it was just downright offensive. And that's what happens here. So what we see is this phrase, have you never read? Three times in the book of Mark. Six times in the book of Matthew. It's as if Jesus is deliberately taunting them, mocking them for their hypocrisy and for their foolishness. It is, uh, it's reminiscent of Psalm chapter 2 where it says that the Lord in heaven looks down and laughs and scoffs at the wicked. That's exactly what Jesus was doing here. Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? Verse 26, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This passage that Jesus, uh, this, this narrative that Jesus is uh, uh, referring to, we can find back in 1 Samuel chapter 21. David had already been anointed king by Samuel, but now he was running for his life because Saul, the deposed king, had not recognized the new king's authority. And in this emergency situation, he and his men, David and his men, went to the holy place and ate the holy bread that was reserved only for the priests. And what Jesus tells the Pharisees is, hey, if you're going to condemn me for doing what I'm doing today, then you are going to have to condemn David too. Mark Strauss writes, although the actions of David are contrary to the law, he was not condemned in scripture for it. Some violations under certain conditions are warranted. And those conditions include human need, which is a higher law than religious ritual. J. Vernon McGee writes, the letter of the law was not to be enforced when it brought hardship on one of God's servants who was attempting to serve him. And so you see the Pharisees had it upside down. They had twisted it. They didn't care about people. They cared about rules. They didn't care about humility. They were only in it for power that fed their massive ego and pride. The Sabbath was their day to shine, and Jesus was making them look like fools. The Pharisees placed heavy burdens, but were not, as Jesus said later, they were not willing to lift a finger. They had no mercy and no grace. It reminds me of the story of the prodigal son. When the younger son comes home, the older son begins to grumble that he had worked so hard. In that narrative, in that parable, Jesus is speaking of the Pharisees as the older brother. Now, in Matthew chapter 11, which again is a parallel account to this account in Mark, Jesus tells the Pharisees that they would have pulled a sheep out of a pit on the Sabbath. Why? Because a sheep is valuable. A sheep is uh, an income. It's an income. This would definitely have constituted work, but everyone agreed that it was okay to do. But in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, which says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This verse, by the way, is the one Jesus quotes in Matthew chapter 12. This made an exception for ceremonial law. So the point of all this is this. Jesus is not making an excuse for a violation of the law. Rather, he is saying there is no violation to begin with. But then Jesus goes on to make an even further claim. And this is the central text of the passage that we're looking at this morning. Verse 28. 
So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. I'm sad to say we're going to come back to that verse in a minute, so you're going to have to wait on that one. Let's go on to verse uh, 1 of chapter 3. He, Jesus, entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. The word watching here is in the imperfect tense. And what that means is they weren't just casually looking at him. They were surveilling him. They were watching him like a hawk. They were like vultures that, were, that would gather around a dying animal ready to swoop in. But Jesus was not a dying animal. Jesus goes on full frontal assault on these religious tyrants and on their traditions. Verse 3, he said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? So, hear the question again. Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? This is a checkmate question. This is, well, I was, was going to leave this out of the sermon, but I'll give you an example. It's the, have you, have you stopped beating your wife question? You've, you've heard that analogy before. There's no way to answer that, right? If you say yes, that means you were. And if you say no, that means you haven't stopped. And the Pharisees were caught in a similar dilemma. They were stuck. They were trapped. Now that I think about it, I probably shouldn't have used that illustration. So forgive me. But it makes the point that the, the, the Pharisees were, were trapped. They were stuck. They couldn't answer. You see, to say that it was lawful to do good would undermine their entire dispute against Jesus, who was at that very moment doing good. He was healing a man with a withered hand. To say that it was lawful to do evil, well, that would expose their hypocritical, wicked hearts, even though that's exactly what they were doing. Is it lawful to do good or to kill? Well, in their hearts, they had already determined that they had wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted him dead. So, what were they going to do? What could they do? Well, they did the, the only thing they could do. It says, they kept silent. What can you say? What can you say? So here's the question, though. Did Jesus actually break the Sabbath by healing this man's hand? And does it even matter? Question one. Did Jesus break the Sabbath? Question two, does it matter? Answer one, no. Answer two, yes. No, he didn't break the Sabbath. Yes, it matters. Firstly, he healed the man. Okay, so, well, let me, let me step back. How do we know that Jesus did not break the Sabbath? Well, because he healed the man. Now, I want you to understand what I'm saying here. Jesus would not have been able to do a miracle if he was violating the law of God. This miracle attests to the fact that what Jesus said was right and true and what Jesus did was lawful. Miracles, by definition, are that very thing. They attest to the prophetic word of a prophet. Moses performed miracles because he had a message from God. Jesus performed miracles because he was bringing the gospel. And that's exactly what a miracle is. It attests to the sinlessness of the deed of Christ in that very moment. 
Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, why do we know that Jesus didn't break the law? Because Jesus had to be sinless. He had to be sinless. Galatians 4 verse 4, it says that when the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Jesus, though he is God, though he is Yahweh, he was born under the law. Why? So that he could redeem us who are under the law. This is what theologians refer to as the active obedience of Christ. He lived a perfectly sinless life so that he could be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, so that his righteousness could be imputed to us. As the Puritans said, Jesus stood in our law place so that we could be reckoned as keepers of the law. We are perfectly righteous because we are in Christ, and that could not happen if Christ had sinned in any way. So, no, Jesus did not break the Sabbath. In fact, what does Jesus say? I came to fulfill the law, to fill it full in every measure. Verse 5, after looking around at them with grief, with anger, after looking around at them with anger, he grieved at their hardness of heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. First of all, there's no um, indication that Jesus touched the man or was even looking at the man at the time. It's as if the hand that had been stretched out was restored out of thin air. But everyone knew that Jesus had done it. What we find here is before Jesus heals this man, it says that he was angry. Do you know this is the only time in the Gospels that it records that Jesus was angry? I know what you're thinking. What about the temple when he cleanses out the temple and he turns over the, the tables and he makes a cord and he whips? I know, it doesn't say that he was angry. Now, we might be able to infer, infer some anger there, but this is the only place in, in, in Scripture where it says he was angry. So that says a lot. Why was he angry? Because of their hardness of heart. Hardness of heart is used in the Old Testament repeatedly to describe rejection of God's message from a prophet. The rejection of God's message and the rejection of God's mercy. The Messiahship, prophetic ministry, and even divinity of Jesus are obvious to us. Why then wasn't obvious to these, uh, to these religious leaders? To some of them it was. To Nicodemus it was, though that took time. To Joseph of Arimathea it was. They both believed. But the unbelief of the Pharisees was a deliberate setting of one's face to disbelieve no matter the evidence. This hardening was a disbelief. It was a disbelief that led to increasing hardening. I'll give an illustration of the first time you take your shoes off in the summer. Some of you have experienced this and you walk on pebbles. Oh, it hurts, doesn't it? There's a bit of a sting there. But as you continually walk on pebbles over the summer and on the sand, you don't feel it as much, do you? Another example of this would be uh, guitar players. As you play that guitar, the first time you played it, you remember how much your fingers hurt, don't you? How painful it was and how much you were thinking to yourself, I, I can't do this again, I can't pick up another guitar. 
but you kept doing it and you kept doing it or you picked up a pick which ruins the illustration but the point is you develop these calluses and soon you're able to play that guitar and you're not even able to feel a thing well that's a good thing when it comes to guitar playing and maybe walking on pebbles but that's also the way the heart works if you consistently reject the message if you consistently reject the gospel and reject the Holy Spirit prompting your heart to believe your heart doesn't remain neutral you can only say I'll do it later so many times at some point you've gone beyond the limit and your heart can no longer believe that's the hardening of heart the Pharisees and this is indicative in verse 26 because what do we see the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him now this is a pretty big this is a pretty big idea pretty big deal here the Pharisees and the Herodians are conspiring the Pharisees and the Herodians are conspiring that's equivalent to perhaps the Democrats and the Republicans conspiring these days or something as significant as that it these were mortal enemies they hated each other the Pharisees were religious zealots who were keeping tradition. The Herodians were following the program of King Herod, which was secular and destructive. And so they didn't see eye to eye on anything, but they came together to destroy Jesus. And this teaches us another very valuable lesson that Jesus brings people together. Not always in a good way. In this place here, amen, definitely a good way. But we see even later on that Pilate and Herod became friends. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? That when evil can agree on nothing else, it can agree to destroy Jesus and his people. So now I want to go back to verse 28. I told you that I would do that. The key verse in the text. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. This term son of man, before we get into being the Lord of the Sabbath, let's look at this term, the son of man. Do you know that this term son of man is Jesus's preferred self-designation in the Gospels? It occurs 83 times in the New Testament and 78 of those times are used by Jesus himself. So what does it mean? Is Jesus merely identifying with our humanity? It's like, I'm a son of man. I'm a, I'm a man. Is that what he's saying? Well, there's a lot more to it than that. Uh, I'm going to be going back and forth through a lot of scriptures, so you might want to catch it later. If you could make it in time, great, but I'm going to just keep going, okay? So Daniel chapter 7 says this. Daniel was in the midst of a prophetic dream when he said, I kept looking up until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days being God the Father. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were serving him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. And then verse uh, 13 of Daniel 7. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom, so that all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, 
which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Let me read that last part again. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. So, Jesus is not identifying with humanity when he describes himself and calls himself the Son of Man. Does he identify with our humanity? Absolutely. But this title signifies divine authority. Absolute sovereign lordship over everything. In using this title for himself, Jesus is claiming deity. He is saying, I am Yahweh. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And in saying that he is Lord of the Sabbath, he's identifying as the one in Genesis chapter 2, who blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, who in Exodus 20 ordained and instituted into the Mosaic Covenant, and who gave it as a gift to his people. By virtue of his identity, Jesus has authority over the Sabbath. Therefore, he, and remember what I said before in Genesis 2, God has authority over the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He identifies it. He defines it. And what Jesus is saying here is, I have the right to dictate the meaning of it. I have the authority to define its purpose and, in, and its function. God has the authority over the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus is God. And that's what he's saying here. And that's why the Pharisees wanted to kill him. So, if Jesus has the right and the authority to define what Sabbath is, then what exactly, how exactly does he define it? In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, God anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who were oppressed, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. What is the favorable year of the Lord? The Old Testament uses a term, the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee is a year of ultimate Sabbath rest. Every 50 years, seven sets of seven Sabbaths would be the ultimate Sabbath rest, the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Leviticus chapter 25, you shall count seven weeks of seven, seven years of seven, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim, listen to this, liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Liberty throughout the land. It shall be a jubilee for you, where each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan. So the year of Jubilee was a year when all slaves were set free, when all land was returned to its owners, where all debts were forgiven. And what is Jesus saying here? The year of Jubilee has arrived. He is proclaiming the year of ultimate rest. We find reference to this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 4. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the Sabbath day from all his work. And again, in this passage, they certainly shall not enter my rest. Verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. Consequently, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself 
also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fail or no one will fall by following the same example of disobedience. So we see here in Mark chapter 3, there, it is no accident that Jesus chose to perform healings and miraculous signs over and over and over again on the Sabbath. Why? Because, as one commentator said, his healing activity linked his miracles with the day that for the Jewish people symbolized the future kingdom of God. A day when bondage would cease and the time of joy and messianic celebration would begin. These Sabbath healings were then to be seen as foretaste and signs of the kingdom that Christ was announcing. Jesus' divine activity on the Sabbath is saying something. The kingdom of God is breaking through. The shadow of the Sabbath. These are being eclipsed by Jesus, who is the true Sabbath. His perfect life and perfect death, he gave full meaning to the Sabbath through these things. So, Sovereign Grace, when someone comes to you and asks you, do you guys, do you observe the Sabbath? Your answer should be, of course, we honor Jesus. He is our Sabbath. It's not a day, it's a person. So, in this message, we've talked about a few things. We've talked about Christ being the Son of Man and what that means. We've talked about Christ being our Sabbath rest and what that means. And there's one other dimension I want to address, and I'm almost finished. Again, in Matthew's parallel account in chapter 12 of his gospel, it is written, Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. If you combine this with John chapter 1 verse 14, where it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and that word dwelt there is the same Greek word for tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The tabernacle was the predecessor of the temple. And what Jesus is saying here is that I am the true temple. We find reference to this in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14. I'm going a little bit long, so I'm going to pass over this passage, but I do want to challenge you to read it later. In, in essence, uh, the first few phrases, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, more perfect tabernacle, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by his own precious blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus is the great high priest, the mediator of this new covenant that we are part of. And it, he is the mediator where he is the temple, he is the high priest, and he is the sacrifice all in one. Praise God. So what does all this mean to us? Well, I have several applications here. First of all, Jesus is the Son of Man. All authority has been given to him. What is our response to that? Well, what did Jesus tell us to do right after he said, all authority has been given to me? Go and make disciples. You have my authority. My authority is over all the kingdoms of the earth. Go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He liberated us forever and has given us rest. What is our response? Stop working to earn your rest. Rest in Christ. 
Do you have any traditions that oppress you? Maybe you don't know if you have traditions that oppress you. Go home and ask God. God, please reveal to me any traditions that are oppressing me, that are holding me in bondage, and please deliver me from them. Those things hold you back from experiencing the ultimate rest that you can have in Christ. If you have never put your faith in Christ, come to him now. He can be and is your rest. Do not delay. Remember what I said. If you harden your heart, there will come a day when you will not be able to believe. Jesus is our true temple. Remember the angels? I want you to think about this for a second. The angels in the tomb. The tomb that Jesus rose from. One at the head, one at the foot, where Jesus lay. And in the middle, a bloody cloth. Do you remember the Ark of the Covenant? That box, that golden box. Top of it, two angels, one at the head, one at the foot. What went in the middle? Blood. The blood of a perfect animal sacrifice to atone for sin. What does Hebrews say? Animal sacrifices could never take away sin. In the tomb, the blood of Christ. The perfect blood which takes away the sins of the world. The blood on the first altar couldn't take away sin, but the blood on that second altar takes away sin forever. And finally, Jesus is our great high priest of the new covenant. Jesus is always and forever sitting at God's right hand. He is always interceding for us, for you right now. If you belong to him, he is interceding. He is praying for you. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? No one. It is because of Christ's role as priest that Romans 8, verse 38 and 39 even work. Because he reigns as our priest king, we are forever secure. What is our response? Believe. As Lynn said this morning, our response, the work of the covenant for us, is to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And one final application. Behold your God. I hope in this message that I have exalted Christ. I hope that he has been placed at the center of this message. Behold your God. I've sought to demonstrate many truths in this text, this great text. Number one, that he is sovereign and has absolute authority, that he is our Sabbath rest, that he is our great high priest, and that he loves you and me. Brothers and sisters, behold Jesus Christ, our Lord. Pray with me. We exalt you, Lord. We lift you up. God, be praised. Help us to behold you in all of your glory. Help us to behold you, Lord, as the Son of Man who has all authority, as the true temple, as the great sacrifice, and as our great high priest. And help us to live in response to that, in faith, in obedience, in trust, that because you have done the great work that there is nothing for us to do but to rest in you and to go forth in that rest to make disciples, to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
and to know that you are with us always to the end of the age. If there's anyone in this place this morning who has not believed, who has not trusted, I pray that you would shine forth in their hearts. Send your Holy Spirit to them that they may know that these things are true. Do not let them delay. Be honored. Be glorified.